today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, you know what's going on outside. I mentioned it off the top. It is snowy. It's blowing. It's ugly. Schools were canceled. Other businesses are canceled. Universities are canceled. Colleges, whatever. But this is now either the third or the fourth, I can't remember, this year, snow day that these schools have had to deal with. And you do wonder at what point, if at any point, schools say, we got to do something to make up for these lost lessons. These are lost days that students aren't getting taught, aren't learning what they're supposed to be learning. Let me bring in the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, Alex Johnstone. Alex, thanks for doing this today. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. I hope you're somewhere warm and dry and safe and not in your car. I am inside my house right now. <laughs> I think that's the perfect place to be today. Um, when you have, we're up to, as I say, I think it's three or four. I can't remember. And yesterday we four. had, okay, four. And yesterday we had uh, global news meteorologist Anthony Parnell on, or Farnell on, who said, uh, we're expecting there will be more of these before this winter is done. We're expecting a really bad rest of the winter. At what point do we, or how do schools start to make up for these lost lessons when kids are out of class for these days? Well, Scott, you know that it must be uh, something big happening in the weather world when TDSB gets shut down. This is apparently the first time yes. in history that the all of their schools have been shut down. And um, here in Hamilton, uh, four is our, our maximum number that we've ever reached. Uh, we reached it once before in 2013. We were closed uh, due to weather for four days. Um, but across the province, we have many rural communities. Um, so I was speaking today with the chair of Avon Maitland. The maximum number of snow days they have had there is 14 days, including seven consecutive snow days. Uh, the chair of Blue Water informed me that they have had 11 snow days. So it is something that school boards deal with on a regular basis. And uh, to your question about adding school days onto the calendar, um, in speaking with all of these chairs, not one has ever, not one of these school boards have ever gone to the ministry in a petition to have the school year extended. Um, so when we're looking at our school year, uh, we're, when we're looking at when inclement weather results in a significant loss of instructional time, principals then go back to their area superintendents and they start to have conversations with them. And they'll have conversations with them about canceling or reducing cumulative activities. So those would be excursions, that could be school assemblies. Um, our teachers will begin to look at condensing the instructional materials um, so that are enhancements to the curriculum. So they may change presentations that, um, that they originally had planned in their school year. Um, they may uh, look to increase instructional time and really focus on the core mandated curriculum and eliminate anything that's considered to be extra or additional. So what's really wonderful is we have teachers who are very good at modifying plans in order to accommodate our students. And not only do they do that on um, in, on weather days, um, but they also do that throughout the entire school year, monitoring our students, um, assessing you know whether they're meeting their learning needs and if they need to pull in additional resources. So it's, it's something that they do in their daily practice. 
would it, would there ever be a consideration? Because uh, I'm looking out the window where I was a few minutes ago. We're right across from Westdale High School here at CHML, and on the sign out front of Westdale, there was a, a notice for PD Day coming up on March the first. Would there ever be a thought of you know what we we've had days off now that we weren't planned, but we're going to now cancel the PD days and work through them? So. Um, the calendar is actually um, agreed upon or pro- um, proposed by school boards annually. We recently passed our um, upcoming school year calendar uh, just, um, um, uh, I think it was a week ago, that we, we passed our school year calendar for uh, 2019-2020 uh, school year. And with that, you actually have to appeal to the ministry for any changes, and the ministry then has to approve that. So it's not as simple as we're going to add on a few days. The Education Act is quite strict. Um, It does state that the school year shall begin um, immediately following um, Labor Day weekend and conclude in June or um, before July 1st. So to add additional days, you would actually need to appeal to the Minister of Education. It's quite a um, a strenuous um, process. And again, um, in speaking with my colleagues across the province, it has never been done. Um, What is normally done, what the practice is, is to are for our professionals to take a look at how can we condense the um, our our curriculum or condense the. Uh, learn our learning plans in order to focus on core curriculum. And and you are confident that that, because I mean, look, we, we know that uh, there are challenges now. We know, I mean, EQAO, take EQAO for what it is. Some people think it's really, really telling of something. Some people dismiss it as not all that telling, but it's what we have. And there have been some struggles there. You're, it would seem that we need more time in class rather than less time in class. And I'm not suggesting, Alex, that you are responsible for the weather or for these rules, but you're confident that we can make up for that. The teachers can make up for that time and can still teach what they need to teach. Well, this is education in Canada, right? This is this is learning in Canada. And again, when I was speaking with the chairs of boards, Blue Water up in Lake Huron, Avon Maitland, um, those boards are experiencing um, 14, 11 uh, snow days a year. And with that, they're able to meet their learning needs. Uh, interesting conversation with the chair of Avon Maitland and the focus on technology and how technology has really helped to uh, ensure that students are able to continue to learn um, while they are away from school, while they're having snow days. Uh, one of our teachers um, had tweeted out today some fantastic um, learning opportunities online uh, that students can access while they're spending their day at home. Learning continues not just in the classroom, but it continues beyond the classroom. We certainly know that with, with homework and with extracurricular activities. Um, and with that, um, when we so learning can continue um, through on these snow days, but also again it goes back to uh, when we do have concerns. That's when the conversations um, take place between the principal and the superintendent about how we can condense um, and focus on the instructional materials. That you just raised a really interesting idea that had never dawned on me until you just said it right now. We had Manny Figueroa, who's the director of education, on. Uh, my show in the evenings last week, and he was talking about your um, what was the iPad program. Now the it's broader than iPads now that you're considering that people could use other devices. Would that ever be something that you would talk about as far as when you have these days that are out of your control? 
the technology would seem to be there now that a teacher could essentially stand in front of their iPad or their their laptop with an with a camera phone and teach a class to kids who were at home. Well, again, you look at education across Ontario, and that certainly does take place within many of our rural communities. And um, uh, the nature of education is always changing. Um, and with our society. Teachers and students are able to connect um, in a variety of different ways, and online is one of them. Would it replace the the school day, per se? That's a conversation that would, um, I guess, need to be had in the future. But as of today, many students um, and parents and their guardians are spending this day perhaps um, catching up on homework, perhaps accessing additional learning resources um, um, and exploring new opportunities while they're at home. Alex Johnson, Chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. Have a great day. Stay safe. That is, uh, as I say, Alex Johnson, the Chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. You know, that last idea, though, I don't think I'm crazy with that one. We had, as I say, we were talking to Manny Figueredo, who is the Director of Education. And last week, the school board discussed, and they, they have a plan, they have a program that for many ages in certain Hamilton schools, students were given an iPad. And it was for learning within the classroom for that kind of thing. It wasn't for every single kid in school, but that has broadened then because some of the kids were complaining about the iPads. They didn't like the iPads per se. They liked their laptop better. They wanted something else. So they, the school board was discussing this and broadened what kids will be able to use. So if they have a laptop, they could use that potentially, or an iPhone or a, a smartphone of any kind or an iPad or whatever else you want to use. And this was the idea that we are going to use technology in education. Well, just let's stop for a second and think about our current situation right now. We've had four now school days, snow days that kids have missed. School days missed by snow. Four days of learning that as Alex just pointed out, teachers are going to have to try to compress, maybe dump some school trips, maybe dump some other less core initiatives, less core learning within the classrooms. We always hear about everyone saying, well, school is about more than just the math and English. All right, but that stuff is going to get dumped, I guess. I don't know what that means exactly, what those things are. But but this is a an unplanned school day that you just happen to not be able to get into school. But based on the fact that now teachers have technology, all or most of the students have technology, this is hardly now a stretch to say that a student is going to have some kind of device that they can get online wherever they are. Is there, is there a student in the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board that doesn't have access? Well, there'd be some, there'd be a few, but the enormous majority would have some kind of device and some kind of ability to get online. Considering this is supposed to be a learning day, that this is supposed to be a school day, that this is supposed to be a day kids are in class, they can't get there physically, how can we not, and maybe not today, I understand because this hasn't been planned, but for the school board, for future consideration, how can we not have a situation where class is in session, it's just online today because we can't do it from the classroom. And the answer that, well, you know, 
teachers or students may have other things going on. No, 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 no. This was a work day. This was a school day. You don't have anything else going on because this is a day that you were supposed to be in school. And so, again, where is the problem? Where is the difficulty? Where is the nonsense about saying, you know what, teacher, Mrs. Jones, who was supposed to be teaching her grade six math class at 10 o'clock this morning is going to be teaching that. She's going to be doing it on her webcam and you you students at home get on your device because you're supposed to be at school anyway. And we're going to have our math class and you're going to do it from home. What that seems that is what technology is supposed to be doing for us, isn't it? And I understand it's snow day and I don't want to ruin the snow days and all that kind of stuff. Look, if a school has a snow day, fine, fine. You know what? Every kid deserves a snow day. I'm not a Grinch. I, I, I'm not grumpy that way. It's not like, well, every kid, no kid should ever have fun. No, no, no. Every kid deserves a snow day. I have nieces today in Toronto who I heard are having their, their I don't even know which grade, their grade seven, grade five. They're having their first ever snow day. Okay, they deserve a snow day. I'm not talking about a snow day. I'm talking about when you get up to three, four, five, if Anthony Farnell is correct, and we're going to have more of these coming down the road. Please explain to me why we couldn't use the technology that we are touting, that Hamilton's school boards are touting as one of the great things that they're doing, one of the great successes, and not use it for something like this. This is exactly what this kind of technology would be perfect for. Class is in session. You're just doing it from home in your pajamas. And if you don't pick up your phone, you better have an excuse or you're registered as absent. Unless for some reason you don't have Wi-Fi, you don't have a device, we understand. But otherwise, class is in session. We're going to take attendance. You better say you're there or you're absent. It's a class. That seems to me to make perfect sense. I hope that they will talk about that. I hope they'll consider that. This is what we should be doing. This is the kind of stuff. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The big story of the day though right now, and there's lots of stories that are breaking. My goodness. Uh, El Chapo, you know, El Chapo, he just got convicted. So he's now going to be in jail for who knows how long, unless they give him a shovel. He's good at getting out of those jails. But The other big story of the day today, which broke just about 10 minutes before we came on the air at noon, Bill Kelly was just wrapping up, was that Jody Wilson-Raybould has now resigned from the Trudeau cabinet. You would know if you've been paying any attention to the news at all for the last few days, that she is really, she and the prime minister are the two centerpieces in this brewing scandal about uh, SNC-Lavalin, which is that pressure was being put on her to give them a break to drop criminal charges, which would then allow them to bid on government jobs worth billions of dollars, potentially. This is, of course, a very big Quebec company. And she, the story goes, as the reporting goes, she said no shortly after. We don't know if it's connected, but boy, does it ever have a bad smell. She was demoted, fired from her Justice Minister job put in charge of Veterans Affairs and today has resigned from Cabinet altogether. Let me bring in Tim Powers, who is the Vice Chairman of Summa Strategies. Uh, he has served as an advisor to national party leaders and federal Cabinet ministers. Uh, Tim, thanks for doing this today. 
Uh, no problem, Scott. Sorry, I'm in a bit of a noisy place, so I apologize already for the background noise. It isn't the Conservatives or the NDP celebrating. It's just a restaurant. Although I bet it could be. <laughs> it, it could be because this story continues to have the most bizarre plot twists. We had the Prime Minister yesterday, as you know, in British Columbia, saying that he had a conversation with uh, uh, Miss Wilson-Rabel, and she... Uh, they both recollected the conversation, and in that conversation, as reported by the Prime Minister, he had said to her, well, you make all the choices as it relates to how uh, you act with the public prosecutor. There's no there's no pressure. And then today she resigned. Uh, interestingly, last night, as you know, your, your colleagues were trying to get a quote from her or from her office as to whether uh, what the Prime Minister had reported and said it happened was accurate. They didn't get that. They got this. It's, it's a story that continues to have more legs and no clear answers. Well, and one of the, one of the uh, funny is not the right word. Ironic, I guess, is the better word. When I say funny, it wasn't the ha-ha funny. It was, I say, the irony funny, is that yesterday when Prime Minister Trudeau was talking about this, one of his answers was, the fact that she's still in cabinet should tell you all you need to know yeah. about where she stands on this and that she, in so many words, that she supports what I'm saying. And that you can infer from her continuing presence in cabinet that all the reporting is blah, 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 and, and she's really, it's all good. And then this happens today. And it's like, well, wait a second. So if her being in cabinet says all is well, is it a fair assertion or inference that her being out of cabinet now means a bomb has just dropped? It's hard not to take it that way, uh, because certainly that was a narrative that the prime minister voiced yesterday, but it was happening over the weekend that uh, if a cabinet minister disagrees, uh, Andrew, precedent is for that cabinet minister to step out. People with somewhat longer historical memories will recall in the early days of the Harper government, Michael Chong, who was a junior minister, stepped out when the uh, Conservatives came forward with the Quebec as a nation resolution, and he stated quite clearly that's what he did So, and why he did it. Um, yeah, if, so, Prime Minister, it'll be interesting to be taking questions today. What do you take by her resignation? What do you take it? To mean she's, you know, also hired a former Supreme Court justice, a very eminent uh, legal scholar and practitioner, Thomas um, oh, Cromwell, uh, who had recently retired from the court to represent her privately. Uh, I mean, these signs don't point to this story clearing up or the prime minister's version being in sync with Miss Wilson Rabel. No, I, I would think, and again, I, I am not the expert. I mean, I, I'm I'm looking at this as a political observer. You're you're more way more of an expert, but I'm looking at this saying, wait a second. If the former attorney general, for all intents and purposes, the former justice minister, is now hiring her own lawyer, that doesn't have a great look for the government. It doesn't, and you know, this story could have been cleared up last week when the Globe and Mail first broke it. Before this whole notion of solicitor-client privilege was invoked, if Jody Wilson-Raybould had said, no, the story's not accurate. That never happened. Then we got into this debate, uh, you know, killing people with details around solicitor-client privilege. Then, uh, you know, the other way to kill this story would have been uh, for somebody from Minister Wilson-Raybould's office on background, because this whole story so far is based on anonymous sources coming out and saying, look, uh, Minister Wilson-Raybould, yes, adheres to solicitor-client privilege, but I can tell you, this story's not accurate. That hasn't happened. I mean, it was pretty damning last night that their office wouldn't 
speak to or offer comment on the prime minister's uh, comments. So well, there's smoke, there's fire. The question is how significant a blaze is this for the government? Um, as we've seen in past scandals, I don't know if it's the right word to use yet, or crises like this that in, in, embolden, uh, engulf the government, excuse me, and, and uh, take them hostage by their own means, is that it takes a longer time than the story and the first details to come out before there's major political impact here. But certainly this isn't good for the government. So my prediction, probably poor, but my prediction is going to be here Maybe now. Anyway, Scott, we all predict. We all well, get it wrong, but go for it. But if you follow sort of how you can anticipate where this is going to go now, the Prime Minister's office, I believe, has now said, oh, we had discussions. Uh, of course we had discussions. This is a huge company. SNC-Lavalin uh, employs something like 50,000 people. I mean, we there were talks with Cabinet. I, I think the next move is going to be she misinterpreted what we were talking about as being pressure, but there was never any pressure. And what I'm wondering, Tim, is if, if that becomes the next answer, that we never pressured her, but she may have somehow misinterpreted this, is that enough for him that it was just a misunderstanding? Well, I, I think if the PMO really wants to show they're addressing this and the Prime Minister is showing addressing this, some, there needs to be probably a resignation from the Prime Minister's office. Whether that's going to happen or not, that doesn't happen easily. The Prime Minister is very loyal to his staff and they're very loyal to him. But if they're concerned, that could be a, a particular place where this story goes. The other side of this is, uh, and, and as a former senior person in the government said this to me today, he said, you know, I think where the government is going wrong is not defending why there could have possibly or why there were discussions. SNC-Lavalin, despite their uh, checkered past, are a major, they're not just a Quebec company, they're a major Canadian company, they're a major world operator. It would only make sense if there would have been discussions, but it seems the government has turtled from taking that line of defense and, and going in that direction. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go against your prediction, Scott. They may come out that way, but it won't be the way that that won't bring peace and quiet in our time for them. Once you have, and you've advised governments before, once you have taken your initial stance and given your initial answer, how difficult is it then to go back and say, you know what? Um, you know, we've, we've considered this again and, and are you not kind of locked into your position once you take that initial first day, first stance? You are, but I think, uh, as with any other uh, human entity and uh, or professional organization, people allow you to have a little bit of flexibility. You can say, look, I've learned more. I mean, for example, if there was a, an, an issue where the prime minister says, look, after doing more digging, I learned that perhaps one of my staff members overreached. That was not appropriate. That staff person is no longer with me. Uh, I apologize. I mean, Justin Trudeau, to his credit, hasn't had trouble apologizing. Canadians like apology. But they have to do that sooner rather than later, because the longer this drags on with different versions and different entrails to it all, what they're hoping happens is Canadians tune out. Because eventually, it's a bit like what's going on in the United States with the Mueller probe and what Trump is trying to do. More information, more details, some of them erroneous, some of them helpful, uh, that people eventually will get to a point of information overload and they won't pay attention. That's how you often defend a scandal or a, a crisis like this one. Um, maybe that's what the government's game plan is. Um, the problem for them is the window towards the election is shrinking, and that may irritate people more than 
uh, than, than it does turn them off. Well, and there's another uh, landmine, I guess, here for the Trudeau government, if in fact there's some flame where the smoke is, and that is this is a government that has been very clear about its feminist bona fides, yeah. and it's been very much talking about the indigenous issue and very much about all these other things. And here you now have a successful female indigenous cabinet minister, maybe the most successful or highest placed ever, certainly in the discussion. And she's the one that is shown the door. And if it turns out that she was the one who was actually upholding the law and the side of the angels, man, does that ever stink for them? Absolutely. And as Andrew Shear tried to say yesterday, I think in, in one of his press conferences, you know, let her speak. There is the symbolism of her not speaking either for the so-called feminist prime minister. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I don't believe you are. Maybe you are in your no. as a radio uh, personality, <laughs> too. But, uh, I, you know, the solicitor client privilege is a bit of, if I, might, if I may use the initials, BS, in my view. There's a little, there are ways to go around this. Uh, or to speak in general terms without betraying that. But if Justin Trudeau, in fact, has all the power uh, to direct his current attorney general to waive solicitor-client privilege, and there's nothing to this story, then why doesn't he just do that and move on? Uh, they're making it very, you know, I, I don't think Canadians may, be, uh, to, may tune off for a little while if it's a debate about solicitor-client privilege, but at a certain point, the debate around solicitor client privilege isn't the answer Canadians are looking for. They're looking for some answer as to what actually happened here and was there inappropriate and potentially criminally behavior, criminal behavior, I should say, at play. And the, the prime minister should be looking to clear that up if he can. And it, it appears he's looking to cloud it right now as opposed to clear it. Well, and that goes to what you said a moment ago, and that is if you can find a topic that is not necessarily a sex scandal, because sex scandals have like, I mean, they'll go on forever. That, th those are the ones that people are more than happy to follow every gratuitous detail on for years. <laughs> this is not that. Like and, blue get, uh, gap dress. Yes, well, hey, well exactly. That. Or or with, um, uh, oh, who was uh, the uh, uh, presidential candidate way, way back once upon a time? Um, Gary Hart. Gary Hart, thank you. Like those ones, they, they just Tony never Clement. go away. Yeah, you know, Tony Clement in his online chat. Exactly. Anyway, this we're, though, we're digressing. No, no, ahead. but those ones, those ones you're never going to get rid of. People will follow everything. You mentioned about how part of the plan could be, let's just let this thing eventually peter out because people are going to get bored with it. We're just going to drag this thing along. That point, though, would have been bang on if Jody Wilson-Raybould had simply hung tight. If there was nothing to this and she just stays in her office and she has to know, she is a smart woman. She knows that when she fires off this resignation letter today that she is dumping about 10 gallons of fuel on a little bit of burning kindling. <laughs> yeah, she, she, she's just burnt down tomography. Uh, yeah, she, <laughs> she, she, she is. Listen, she's... Making a point, um, though one wishes the solicitor client privilege could be made, and we understand the fullness of the point that she's trying to make. When she moved cabinet portfolios, demoted as it was described, uh, she made a point in that letter, uh, as you uh, as you will recall, and as your listeners know who followed the story of saying, you know, she always tried to act impartially. I'm paraphrasing here, but. That was a bit of foreshadowing. I don't know if she or, or the rest of government uh, believed that the plot would take all these twists, but 
again, from the broader politics of this, Justin Trudeau um, and Canadian public uh, going into an election in October, uh, this is not something you as a governing party want to be dealing with heading to the polls. I still think it's their election to lose, but they're not helping their chances of winning with all of this. Does this have legs, though? Because, again, yes. it's not necessarily sexy, but it's potentially really... I, I don't know. I don't know if by the time October or September rolls around, if we're still going to have any appetite for this or if we're going to go, oh, I know everything about that, and what else you got? Well, I mean, I guess you could go back and look at the history of the sponsorship scandal, which is maybe somewhat akin to this in that there are suggestions of self-interest involving Quebec-based entities and people in the prime minister's office and in government allegedly doing things that benefited those those interests, friends of theirs. And those are the things that are always vulnerable to a government, but particularly vulnerable to a liberal government. It took them a decade to recover from the sponsorship scandal and all of that. But back to where I was starting with that, I mean, that those sponsorship scandal stories started in you know, the early years of Mr. Cretchen's last term, and then they took until Mr. Martin and the Gomery Inquiry. I mean, they take, sometimes it can take a good four or five or six years uh, before they have a pronounced uh, pronounced impact. I don't know if, if this is in that league or not, um, but the Prime Minister still has enough time over six or seven months to try and change the channel. They've got a big channel-changing exercise coming in the next number of uh, weeks, uh, that being the federal budget date to be determined. Um, they're going to try and, and focus people on their economic record and not their uh, alleged or actual misbehaving ways. It is, a, uh, it is a fascinating story to see whether this will stick around. I, I tend to think that the, the difference may be, I don't know that the media is going to get bored with this one. No, Whereas no, the media are not going to get bored with it, they, they, and they didn't get bored. To be fair, with the uh, with the sponsorship stuff, if I remember correctly, it was one journalist who was kind of obsessed with it when the National Post started. It was Andrew McIntosh, and he continued to write about you know the the fountain in Shawinigan, which really wasn't directly related to the sponsorship scandal, but are around government largesse and the prime minister of the day's involvement in that. Uh, but there is so much more penetration of media, both traditional and social. Uh, now that it, 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 it's hard to see it dying and the competitive pressures are even greater than in those days. So you have to imagine numerous media sources, both uh, traditional and non-traditional, coming at this full bore, uh, trying to, uh, trying to uh, tell the tale from every angle possible. Tim Powers, Vice, Pre uh, Vice Chairman of Summa Strategies and former advisor to national party leaders and cabinet ministers. We really appreciate the time today, Tim. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Take, talk to you soon. Bye. That is, uh, let me give you, by the way, a couple of the highlights because she, uh, the former justice minister, uh, Judy Wilson-Raybould, the letter that she put out, you may not have seen it. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but two notes, well, three notes of interest in her letter. One of them, as we mentioned, the fact that the former justice minister, who is essentially our version of the attorney general, is lawyering up in the sense of she's seeking outside counsel. She's not lawyering up. She's not lawyering up because she's done something wrong. There's no allegation of that. But when she's getting a lawyer to know what to do, that, that, that's interesting. Uh, number two, through this letter, she thanks many, many people to the veterans, to her office, to ministerial staff, to all Canadians, to 
um, other ministers, all this kind of stuff. Who does she not thank in this letter? Justin Trudeau. Does that mean anything? Well, usually you would think that if you were made a cabinet minister by a particular prime minister, there would be some nod to that person, unless perhaps you're not really happy with that person right now. That's an interpretation. Take it for what it is, but he is not mentioned. And the third thing, the second last sentence in this letter, regardless of background, geography, or party affiliation, we must stand together for the values Canada is built on and which are the foundation for our future. Again, interpret that however you want, but if she's saying that she's going out because she is standing for the values that we are built on, well, what are those values and why is she standing up for those? What was missing? There's a lot of things you can interpret in this letter. It's fascinating stuff. And I'm sure that myself and Scott Thompson and Bill Kelly and everywhere else in the media, uh, there'll be lots of discussion of this one over the next little while because more, you can be sure, will be coming out. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There were two very high profile court cases that came to a close last week. You, I'm sure, heard about both of them. One was James McAllister, who was the serial killer in the gay village in Toronto with eight victims that, eight that we know of, eight that he was sentenced on and convicted on. And Alexandra Bissonnette, who was in Montreal, who uh, killed the six people in the mosque in the mass shooting there. Both had their sentencings last week. Both could have, under Canadian law, under relatively new recent Canadian law, both could have been sentenced on consecutive life terms for their crimes. However, and that would have guaranteed, by the way, that they died in jail. However, the judges chose not to do this. Now, in the Quebec case, they extended the time before parole a little bit longer. But they didn't do the consecutive. It was concurrent. And this is not unusual. Just for some reason, consecutive sentences, while they are now allowed, don't happen in Canada. I want to bring in Jamie Stevenson, who is uh, the a past president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association. She is a lawyer at the... Oh, well, let's try again. She wasn't there. We'll, we'll do that again. Uh, she is also a lawyer at Jamie L. Stevenson, an associate law firm. Figures, that's her name. Uh, we'll get her in just a second. But as I say, this was a this was a case where we had an opportunity in this country to do something with two of what would appear to be worst case scenario criminals. These are people who this was not a murder. Now we're not belittling a murder. You don't we don't belittle a murder. If you commit a murder, you deserve what it is you get. But this was not that. This, these were people who took the idea of a murder and ramped it up. These were worst case scenario people. These are people with multiple killings and, and not accidental. These are not people whose, what they did was careless. And as a result, people died. These were people who intentionally set out to commit crimes, followed through and people died more than one person. In the mosque shooting, you had someone who planned his actions, put together a plan, grabbed his weapon, went in and executed these people. No accident. And in the case of James McAllister, 
first-degree murders in all of these. The plan was there. The intent was there to kill these people. He did it. Jamie Stevenson joins us now. Jamie, thanks for doing this today. Not a problem. Nice to talk to you again, Scott. You as well. We're talking about these particular two cases. There could be others we go to, but the James McAllister and the Alexander Bissonette cases. Are these not two basically perfect cases for consecutive terms, Jamie? Well, it's interesting because this law, as you know, is is fairly new, but not new as in the last couple of years. It was assented in 2011. So, of course, there have been other cases, but these two cases are on the forefront of everyone's mind right now. And when you look at it just in terms of the harm and the the apparent heinousness of the crime, and there's no taking it away from that, we would say yes. But when you look closer at the principles of sentencing, and when you remember that just because this provision wasn't utilized by the judges, that doesn't mean that these either of these men are going to get out of prison ever then you have to start to take things apart a little bit. So, yes, on the surface, it's the, these are the perfect cases, but when you start to unravel the layers, you can see why the principles of sentencing, which have more than just one principle, will apply in this case, on, in these cases. Now, you could probably teach a law school class that would take more than the time we have allotted to us today <laughs> to explain this, but in short, what, are, what would one or two of the principles then be that these judges were looking at when they... Because ha- again, in Canadian law, you're right, in 2011, this was passed, so they have the option to do consecutive sentences. What would be the, the principles that would have caused them pause and maybe not caused them to do this? So there are... Six principles. I won't go through all of them because you're quite right. It would take a lot longer than a few minutes. But what the judges are also balancing, and the judge must balance all of the principles. They cannot just focus on one. But of course, the more serious a case is, then the more significant and the more to the forefront the denunciation and the reparation principles come in, which is what we were taught, what you're referring to. But those have to also be balanced with rehabilitation, which is also a principle. And promoting a sense of responsibility, you may say, well, isn't promoting a sense of responsibility giving them that life sentence? Well, I think it can be argued that promoting a sense of responsibility, meaning giving them that light at the end of the tunnel, which I know sounds awful right now, but giving them that light at the end of the tunnel to actually do something about their own behavior is what we need to balance with, of course, the reparation done to the victims and the community, as well as, of course, the denunciation of the conduct. And so I've sort of outlined four of the sure. six principles, but that's basically what, what's being balanced here. Well, let me be very blunt that I think a lot of people would probably say in this case, uh, we're not, again, talking about someone who committed a murder, not that that is something to just poo-poo or to turn our nose up at. I mean, that's serious, but you've got eight and six in these yeah. cases. Why do we care if they're rehabilitated? Why, why, why can we not say in this particular case, we don't care if you go to a jail cell and sit there till the day you die. You're not getting out. We don't want you to get out. And if you never rehabilitate yourself, I don't care. Well, as was indicated by, uh, there was a professor of criminology, I believe it was uh, Penny that was mentioned in the National Post article. And as he said, there are certain, there's a certain thought that even though someone may not be getting out. We want them to have a light at the end of the tunnel so that all is not lost and so that they don't, their behavior doesn't worsen. Someone who has no hope, someone who thinks they're not going anywhere, they actually become a danger even within the prison system. So again, we want 
we do want them, and we still have to have that balance in terms of these are our principles that have been set out in the criminal code, and this is what we have to go by. So we have to balance those, again, giving more weight in these particular circumstances to separating those offenders from society and providing those reparations to the victim. It's, it's a balancing act, which, of course, is what our justice system is all about. I suspect you were 100% correct a couple of minutes ago when you said the chances of these guys getting out on parole someday is very slim. I, I would think you would be exactly right on that case. I can't imagine that the parole board is going to let people who have done this get out. However, stranger things have happened. But the, the other knock against this system then, by allowing the possibility of parole in 25 years, is that what we saw in the Bernardo case not that long ago is that you are going to force victims' families and other people involved in this to come and have to sit through parole hearings, which are painful and largely then unnecessary, which is that something that should be factored in? Well, I think that that's, there's, again, that's a bit of a double-edged sword. And certainly the victims of these types of crimes, uh, the ones that we're talking about today, and as well, of course, of Bernardo's crimes, don't, aren't, they're not obliged to participate they may feel that they're obliged because they want to make sure that these individuals stay behind bars, but they don't. It's also, for some, uh, a healing, part of the healing process that they get, to say, they get to look at this person again and say, look, this is the harm that you've done. This is the harm that you've caused to my family. It continues to cause harm. So again, it's, it's allowing them to continue to be part of the process and not just putting these people aside, both the the accused person, as well as the victims and their families, we're not forgetting about them. We're bringing them back and we're saying, okay, we remember, here's your, here's your chance to put forward again how this is still impacting you 25 years later. This is why we have these hearings. This is why the victims are allowed to participate in these hearings, because we want to hear their voices. We want to continue to hear their voices. And as difficult as it is, it's also a necessary part of the process. While I just said that I think you're right, and I do, that they won't get out, there are examples, though. There are cases in Canadian law where people who have done heinous things are not serving a life in prison. George Lovey is from around here. He killed some people and tried to kill a third one. He's out. Uh, There's a guy from Roger Warren who was a miner up north who put a bomb in his workplace and killed nine people. He was out within like 20 years. So it does happen, and I think that, again, is the thought that people have is that, okay, even if you're going to say no... Um, no chance of parole for 25 years. We like to believe then, even if it's not consecutive, that you're not really going to get out. But that's not always the case. Some people do get out. That's correct. And that those people have gone through a process that is particularly significant and there is particular interest in keeping these people in if there's any risk. And so this is not just they go ahead and go forward and say, and the parole board says, okay, you sound like you mean it. They have to establish roots in the community. They have to establish that they have participated in all of the programming that's been offered to them. They have to establish that they've changed, and that's not easy. But if they have changed, then this is, and this is where perhaps the defense counsel in me is coming out, but this is where our system says, the system that we have says, we now have to give them a chance, but under very close and strict monitoring. We're not just letting them out into the world to say, here you go, here's the world again, do your damage again. We're saying, here, here's a little bit. If you can do that, maybe you'll get a little bit more. But if you can't, 
If you can't follow the rules, and believe me when I say these individuals who are on parole, particularly for these types of acts, are under very, very strict conditions. They're very strictly monitored. So I'm not saying the system's perfect and that things can't go wrong. I would never try to say that. But this is not just uh, an open door policy and here you go. Jamie, in a social media world that we live in now, could anyone like this actually get out though and be able to do what you're saying? Because let's, let's say Bissonette, because McAllister's an older man. He's, even if he does 20 years, he's going to be 81, 86, something like that. But Bissonette's a young man. If he gets out, Everybody is going to know where he is, who he is. It would be almost impossible, it would seem, for him to incorporate himself back into society. You would think that, but we faced this with Carla Homolka as well. There was a lot, when she was released on parole, first of all, there was a lot of outrage. There was a lot of uproar. There was a lot of, I mean, social media wasn't quite what it is back then as it is now, but she has managed to move on with her life and by all accounts, at least as far as we're aware, and again, you may pick up on that and say, well, as far as we're aware, um, that's how she's lived her life. But social media, one has to be on social media in order to be tracked. So that's another part of it. So certainly it would make it easier for people to track uh, any of these individuals if they are released. And I know there are a lot of groups that have started that, that in fact do that. They're particularly developed in order to track people like this, or even something as simple as car theft. We, there are groups that track car theft. So yes, social media has made it easier, but you also have to put yourself out there. So it is possible to fly under the radar from a social perspective, yet while still being monitored by the proper authorities. Are you? Do you know if there have ever been consecutive sentences handed down in Canada? Have, has any judge ever used this? I actually tried to look it up before we spoke today. I wasn't able to track anything down, but I don't, that's not a definitive answer because I wasn't able to track anything down as of yet. This is, uh, this is asking for you to guess on something, but let us say that someone that because they gave uh, concurrent sentences and someone got out, we've talked about a number of examples and you've said there are others. If someone got out, regardless of their parole, who had been potentially could have been there on consecutive sentences, but got out and then re-offended in some bad way, would that end it? Would that cause a government or a legal system or whatever to say, fine, look, we're going to change this and you're going to go away. And when we say go away, we mean go away. Would that kind of thing change it? It's possible, again, when things that outrage the public happen, such as if someone were to re-offend who was on parole, particularly if they re-offended in another heinous way, that obviously puts pressure on the politicians and the government to make more effective changes. But again, and we've talked about this before in different areas, we have to be careful not to just react to one situation and change all the laws just because of one situation. But we need to look at things very carefully. Why did this per- well, how was this person able to reoffend? Was it a- what is it a breakdown in the parole system or was did it start when the individual was sentenced? Uh, Dellen Millard, of course, I just had whispered in my ear was, was consecutive sentences, I believe, but he also, that was two, that was different trials. So it wasn't on the same. Um, okay. Just before I let you go, the, the, the suggestion has been made a bunch of times on this one though, especially well on both of these, but particularly on the McAllister one, because the, the Bissonette case that we're talking about, while he intentionally killed six different people, it was during one act of violence doesn't diminish it. I don't want to make anyone think I'm saying it diminishes it, but the bit, the McAllister one was eight separate 
different, well thought out, well planned offenses. And people have said, look, if he's getting a concurrent term or eight concurrent terms, basically he's killed one and got seven free kills out of this, that, that only, he's only really paying for one of those people. And it diminishes the value of the other seven who died because they, nothing really happened. And I can certainly see how the perception of the sentence that he received would appear that way. But again, we have to consider the fact that, yes, that is his sentence in terms of the offenses, but that doesn't, again, I I come right back to, that doesn't mean that he's going to get out. And the fact that there were so many different victims and that they were planned and deliberate and they were on separate, completely separate occasions is going to factor into any parole eligibility in the future if he even gets to that age. So again, those are factors that go into the decision as to whether or not he'll get released, just like with Bernardo. Jamie Stevenson, past president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association and uh, obviously with Jamie L. Stevenson and Associate Lawyers, thank you for your time. Appreciate it always. Thanks very much, Scott. Take care. I, I Look, Jamie is following the law. She's explaining the law. She is very good at what she does, and she understands this and the reasons behind it. I look at this, and I'm, despite my best efforts, have a very, very hard time not saying when the rules are that a judge has to consider the rehabilitation of the person who's going to prison. If you are James McAllister, who has killed, who has hunted, sexually abused, killed, dismembered, whatever else, eight different people. I have an exceedingly difficult time coming to some idea that I think he needs to spend time being rehabilitated so that maybe someday down the road he can be reincorporated back into society. I mean, that is a pie-in-the-sky, ethereal, whatever thought that some people may have, that some of the, the folks who work in cert, whatever, it, 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 that is nonsense. That is, now, what Jamie was saying it's not nonsense by her. She's explaining what's going on. What I'm saying is the people who have crafted this and said that somehow, even in the worst case scenarios for our criminals, that we have to be putting right at the top of the list of considerations for sentencing, the idea that we have to be able to allow these people to be rehabilitated so they can be reincorporated back into society. Come on. Who, who are we kidding? Because first of all, if he comes in front of a parole board, if he lives long enough to come in front of a parole board, surely no member of a parole board is going to be callous enough, dumb enough, brave enough, if that's a right word, to say, oh yeah, we think you're doing okay, out you go. Come on. And, and Alexander Bissonette, what parole board person is going to say, yeah, we think you're fine to go? So what, why make the, I mean, she says, and, and she's correct, I suppose, to a degree, we want them to behave in prison. We don't, we don't have the capacity to make people behave in prison. What are our prisons if we can't, I mean, I don't want a silence of the lambs kind of thing in the basement, but holy cow, if our prisons are relying on people's goodwill, mass murderers, goodwill to make the prisons operate, well, we got to deal with that too. But rehabilitate, come on, this is not a rehabilitation situation. 
This is, these are those rare cases where right from the start, you say, lock them up, throw away the key. We don't worry about it. We'll take them out in a body bag when they're done. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML.